Now, we're all here today because of Zach's brand new book, Underdogs. In the book, Zach gives us the definitive account of the Eagles' path to Super Bowl champions. He explains why Nick Foles contemplated retirement on his way to winning Super Bowl MVP. He'll detail Howie Roseman's journey to NFL Executive of the Year after being cast aside by former coach Chip Kelly. Boo. And he'll show Malcolm Jenkins' journey to team captain, among many, many other stories. But you got to buy the book to find out. So a huge thank you to Zach and Molly for making the trek to Harrisburg this morning. Uh, so please join me in giving a warm Central Pennsylvania welcome to Zach Berman and Molly oh, Sullivan. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Alex, you're the man. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. You know, I, I was with the Sixers for a, a long period, and, and I'm the rookie with the Eagles. But what you know, has impressed me most about Zach is seeing him every single day in the trenches, the relationships that he's developed with the players, the coaches, um, you, you know, not just the heavyweights, not just the executives and the ownership group, but, but also all of you, the fans, and, and that's really what has been my first impression, you know, working uh, next to Zach, and so I'm excited to be here and, and dive deep into your book, which which I did, like many of you, um, already. And, and we all know that there's, there's, there's a couple books out there on the Eagles, right? Uh, Doug Peterson, got Diddy, Sal Pal. You guys deserve a lot of books. You waited 57 years for this championship, so you, you deserve a lot of them. But your book is different. It's not just about the 19 games, is it? You, what do you pride yourself in with these, with these pages? That's, that's a good question. And first off, thank you for for being here too, uh, I I've seen Molly around the Sixers and the Eagles, and I just wanted her to to get a chance to interview someone shorter than her. So that was <laughs> that was kind of the impetus for this. Um, no, but uh, yeah, my hope here was was really to go beyond um, just those games, like like Molly said, uh, and let you see the people under the helmet, behind the scenes, making the those decisions, how the decisions. Uh, led to that Super Bowl title, and and I had the benefit here of widening my lens, of, of knowing how the movie ended. When I cover the team every day, you're you're covering what you know that day, and, and you don't know what the end result's going to be. I I say it's it's like if, and I hope I'm not spoiling the movie for anyone, but at this point, um, if you've seen The Sixth Sense before, and then you see it the second time, and and you know he was dead the whole time, all these clues make sense. So you can look back and you can say, oh, they made this signing on March 29th, and they held Nick Foles out throughout the, this, you know, th you know, throughout the month of August, and they make this trade on this day. Uh, and then you see how all those pieces come together, and I can, I can put that together. And then also, I've had the good fortune over six years of getting to know a lot of these players. Uh, I, I've been to Yazoo City, Mississippi, where Fletcher Cox is from, you know, I, I ate crawfish with his sister at this place called P. Rouse. Um, I, I've been to Fargo, North Dakota, where Carson Wentz went to college. I've made that drive from Fargo to Bismarck that Carson made when, when he would drive home. I sat with Malcolm Jenkins and his family in Piscataway, New Jersey, and talked about how he learned about leadership. Three days before the Super Bowl, or three nights before the Super Bowl, I was in the team hotel with Jeffrey Lurie, spending an hour with him, having him outline what he's learned over his years of ownership. And so I, I thought that if I just wrote about the games, it wouldn't give really the, 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 the scope of what made that team special. If I explained the people and kind of the underdog stories 
that would be the way to go. So that's really what I was thinking. And you dedicated the book to your father. You're mm-hmm. a Philly boy. Yeah. You know, you grew up uh, every morning w- reading yep. about the Eagles. Um, how much pride do you take in that? And and, yeah. and, and the family side. You've got you've got a young sure. son, Reed, and, and yep, Emily, your you wife. So so there's a there's a there's a sense of pride with that as well with this. I I appreciate that question too because I'm not an Eagles fan anymore. You can't be in this job, but I'd like to say that. And I spoke to some students before that. Even though you become desensitized, you don't become dehumanized. Mm-hmm. And so I I haven't lost sight of like the the 16-year-old reading the Inquirer and the Daily the Inquirer over breakfast and Daily News at lunch and finding the team and finding out the stories through the lens of the writer. Uh, and I mean, they're my you know my brothers are fans. My father-in-law is a season ticket holder. Um, my neighbors back home uh, were at the parade crying. So uh, I don't okay, lose sight of, of that. Okay, how many of you cry? How many of you cry? Okay, there you go. Right. Yeah. So I. I haven't lost sight of that, and I try to think about that every day, and I try to think about that with this book, how, how, how much I would love to read a book like this. And, and going back to that moment when you knew, you, you mm-hmm. said it's kind of like the, you know, the sixth sense and yep. what you see. Uh, Charlotte. Yes. Hotel room after they beat the Panthers. You knew at that moment. Why? Yeah, so that this team was special, sure. that this team was going to do so special things. So it was a Thursday night game, and I, I, re- I remember it distinctly. The Eagles had started off the season hot. They, w- they were 4-1. and one. The Panthers were 4-1 and one at the time, too. And uh, the Eagles went down on a Thursday night. In a short week, you typically think the home team's favored. They don't have to travel. Uh, but And the Eagles were playing without Lane Johnson. He had a concussion. Mm-hmm. They were missing some other key players. And the Eagles had won these games, but they hadn't really beaten – uh, the, a, a playoff caliber team yet. And here they come, and they just outplayed Carolina that, that night. They showed a lot of resiliency. They intercepted Cam Newton. They, uh, Carson Wentz played a great game on national television. And, I, and, and they were 5-1, and one, and I'm putting my notes together after the game. I'm in the hotel room, and I'm saying, this team is a legitimate contender. Now, I didn't know then that they would lose their starting quarterback in December, and, and – uh, and they'd go on, you know, this this magical playoff run and run the Philly special against Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. But you knew there was something different about this team. And I remember distinctly being in the locker room. I was talking to Zach Ertz, and I said, if I had told you before the season that you'd be in this position, having not played without, they had missed Ronnie McLeod for a few games, they missed Lane Johnson. You can go on down the list. He said, I I, I wouldn't have believed you, you know. But there's something about this team and. And you can tell when a player is giving a cliche answer, a player is BSing you, and, and having been around the team for six-plus years, you know which guys are being honest. And I said, these guys believe it too. And, and you, you kick off the book with a party, which I love, mm-hmm. uh, U.S. Bank Stadium. But it, it, it was bigger than that, right? Because typically as, as a reporter, um, every week there's a reason for these players to be humble, as yep. you say. But, but you kicked it off with a party. And so let's talk about the personality of this team uh, the, the toughness, the chemistry that connects with, with all of you. What was it about that winning culture that just made it right? Yeah, and I, I've, I've wondered, I've had people around the league ask, ask that too because, I mean, you can measure a, a player's height, weight, speed, but you don't know kind of those intangible characteristics that make a team special. And they had a, a really resilient group. They had um, – veteran players that were at a point in their career where they just wanted to win. 
Chris Long, Patrick Robinson, you go on down the list. And uh, they had a coach that really used that underdog mentality um, in, a, in a way that, that galvanized that group. And you need to understand with Doug Peterson, he was a backup quarterback throughout his career. He, he had felt that he had been looked over at times. When he got the job, he was criticized in Philly. Before the season, there was, a rep, you know, there was an analyst who said he was the least qualified coach in the NFL. So that was kind of Doug's personality, and Doug used that in the locker room, and it, and it, and it, and it really resonated. And there was so much that team endured throughout the year. So that post-game celebration, the Super Bowl celebration, so it's, it's the pinnacle of your professional career for these guys. There's no next game. They finally reached it. But I think the way they reached it and the chemistry and the camaraderie of, of the team uh, was unique to anything I've, I've seen in six-plus years in that locker room. Don't you guys want to relive this? <laughs> yeah, you can relive <laughs> it every night on your book stand <laughs> with this book. That's Thank what you. the beauty of this is. Uh, if we zoom in on Malcolm Jenkins, mm -hmm. and I love the interview that you had with him after the regular season finale, that loss against the Cowboys, Cowboys coming up next with the Eagles now, but um, and, and you asked him, you know, yo, why should the fans be confident mm -hmm. in this team? And what did he say? Well, why not? Kind of yeah. a Russell Westbrook type thing. Yeah. Why not? And, and, and then I said, well, you're without your starting quarterback, <laughs> and 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 you know, and I, I outlined the reasons, and he said, "I don't care if you were playing quarterback." And to be honest with you, if I was playing quarterback, they they wouldn't have a Super Bowl right now. But yeah, he said that that um, he obviously said Carson's a great player, but he, he said we have home field advantage. Players are gonna have, or, or teams are gonna have to come in here and 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 beat us in Philadelphia. That's not happening. I'm gonna take the chances with the guys in the locker room, and, and that's really how they thought. Uh, Nick Foles hadn't been playing well at the time. He had that bad game, uh, you know, a, a against the Raiders. Struggled in the f in the first quarter against the Giants. There was a lot of reasons at that point to be concerned. Uh, the players weren't. The coaches weren't. Mm -hmm. um, maybe in the back of their minds they said, "We don't have Carson Wentz here," uh, but really they believed that they got to that point. It was more than one player, and they were so good at home last year. Uh, they felt confident having that home field advantage would help. At what point did they did, did Lane and, and Chris do the Amazon two-day yeah. shipping yep. for the for the underdog mask? Sure. At what point did they do that? Did that all go down? Yeah, that was actually before the Falcons game. So so you remember the playoff game? They walked off the field with the masks. Actually, they were at at the team hotel the night before the game having dinner, and you know they had already bought these. And they said if if they win, they're going to pull it out. And sure enough, Julio Jones doesn't make that catch in the back corner of the end zone, and the Eagles upset the Falcons, and I say upset because the Eagles were underdogs, and they come off the field wearing the masks. And then, you know, throughout, uh, that's when this underdog, mo you know, the, the underdog theme really picked up. And I, I remember being at the Vikings game mm -hmm. and looking in the stands, and you see people wearing underdog masks. And I was just thinking, if, if my son watches this game <laughs> 30 years from now, and he sees these masks in the stands, what is he going to think, you know? And, and also with the players, I mean, you yep. think about that because with all these photos post-game, mm -hmm. it's like you want to show your kids, but you're, anyhow, it's a good <laughs> story, and they've got plenty of photos uh, to go. you got eight pages of photos in this book, so there you go there. I need you as an agent. This uh, is yeah, good. you know, <laughs> do what I can. Uh, listen, you make it easy. And uh, part one, uh, building the miracle team. Mm -hmm. Let's zoom in on Jeffrey Lurie, and yeah. he has said that um, every day, 
he, he wakes up and thinks about what it would be like to win a Super Bowl. And when you look at that list that he yeah. has, right, yep. to, to, to building a championship team, what's most important, do you think, sure. for him on, on there? Yeah, so uh, Jeffrey Lurie has a list that he keeps the top drawer next to his bed. Um, now, I'm taking his word on this. I haven't seen the top drawer <laughs> next to his bed. Uh, but it's it, when it's a list he scribbled together when he first bought the team in 1994, and he thought you need first-class facilities, and that's a stadium and practice facility, and that came early on in his tenure. He, he thought you need a, a sh strong head coach with great leadership ability. He thought you need a real smart, innovative executive, you, you know, a personnel executive, and he thought you needed a franchise quarterback. And then after he fired Chip Kelly, he added a fifth thing to that list, and that fifth thing was chemistry and collaboration in the locker room and in the front office. Um, so he really, they really paid attention to a locker room culture and organizational culture, and, and Maui works for the team. He sees that every day. Uh, so, so I think the most important thing there, frankly, is a franchise quarterback. Um, if you have a quarterback, you have a chance to win. And everything changed for the Eagles when they went after Carson Wentz. Even though Carson Wentz was not on the field in the Super Bowl, what that did for that team, for this organization, if you get a franchise quarterback, I think everything else, you can work the other pieces. And with that, Howie Roseman, mm -hmm. who I learned from Zach by reading his book, is just like all of us. He is a gym rat. He's a, he's a field rat, right? So University of Florida, he'd literally go to a parking garage yep. and watch these practices, do scouting reports with his buddies. Uh, talk about his redemption, as sure. you call it. You, you, you did an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, yep. right? There, there's no second acts. But in his case, he proved that his worth. So Abs yes, take absolutely. us through that. Yeah, so, uh, and, and when, when Howie was at the University of Florida, he, he wasn't a football player. He wasn't a football coach. He was a student who just wanted to do this. I mean, literally, there's a scene that I have there where he's sitting on the couch with his roommate, and they're watching ESPN, and a player had just been released and for no compensation. And Howie turns to uh, the person sitting next to his, his roommate sitting next to him and says, they don't know how to value players in the NFL. When I'm a GM, I'm going to make more trades than anyone's ever seen. And sure enough, he makes the trades with Joey Jai last year. Uh, but in, in terms of that, that redemption, um, as, as you all know, when he, he got demoted or his job changed because there was a power struggle with, with Chip Kelly, uh, Howie Roseman spent the year really going around trying uh, – Jeffrey Lurie gave him an assignment, you know, you know, find out how to build a successful team. Howie didn't know if he would come back to the role he had. He didn't know if he'd have to do it in a different team. He didn't know if he would ever have that role again. But he, he spent time with executives from, from different leagues, NFL uh, – I'm sorry, NBA, Major League Baseball, even European soccer. He went over there. And, uh, and what he learned was really how big the job is. And how he explained to me that, that there's, there's not a day that goes by where, like, the only decision he needs to make is do I pick this player or that player. There's so much that goes in to that role, and it's really evolved during the past decade or, or two decades in terms of how you use data, how you use sports science, um, you know, the, the different scouts that, that you have, both the quantitative and qualitative aspects of a player. And so he, he, he learned that he needs to have the experts around him. He, he, he can't control every decision, um, trust the people 
around you, but 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 really know what you do well. And he says this often: major in the majors. Okay, don't major in the minors. So um, the big thing he said he learned was you need to get a franchise quarterback. You don't need to get stamps on your passport to realize that. I, I could tell you that here in Harrisburg. Uh, but that when he got the job back, the first thing he wanted to do was go after a franchise quarterback. Hey, Alex, props to you because, I don't know, this is so cool. You get the inside scoop. This Nobody knows the Eagles better than Zach, and it's cool to have all these little stories. So, Thank you. Uh, Doug Peterson 2.0, mm -hmm. how he changed in year yeah. two. We talk a lot about the winning culture. Um, you know, you're front and center every day at those press conferences. How did he change in year two, though? Yeah, so in, in, in Doug's first year, it, it was really a learning experience for him. Um, he had been a head coach at the high school level, but that's it. Uh, you know, he, he had not been a head coach in the NFL. He had been an offensive coordinator under Andy Reid, but Andy Reid in Kansas City called the plays, had, had, had control over, over a lot. So I think... Doug was, was, was learning how to deal with the locker room, how to deal with, with, the, uh, with the media, how to deal with the expectations of the fans. And his first year, he really tried to do it the way he had always seen under Andy Reid. And his second year, he, he started making adjustments. Their, their, their practices changed, okay? There were more competitive periods and practices. Um, their schedule during the week changed. They had... Mondays off, uh, I'm sorry, they had, yeah, they had Mondays off instead of Tuesdays off. Traditionally, you would have Tuesdays off. Uh, he changed that. He stopped being as forthcoming with injuries. As a reporter, you don't love that, but, uh, but if you guys remember, Andy Reid would start his press conference injuries and clear his throat. Um, Doug, when, when, when Doug, in his first year, he would give the injuries at the beginning of the press conference just like Andy did. Real fans yeah. right there yeah. laughing at injuries. I, I get uh, it. Yeah, I get he, it. He's, he stopped doing that, and, and really he, he grew into himself. He grew into the role, and um, he embraced the, uh, the data-driven aspects of the organization. He wanted to be aggressive on fourth downs on the goal line. Um, that was a big emphasis of his. Uh, and just the way he dealt with the locker room. He, he took pride in the fact that he's a former player. Um, if, if Doug was here, I, I, I would even say this too. If, if, if you didn't know Doug's career and you just listened to him, you would think he was like Dan Marino, like off, you know, because he, he talks about his playing days. But, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I will say this, you, you play 14 years in the NFL, that's impressive, even if you're a backup. But um, he felt like he could connect with the locker room. He really focused on the locker room culture. Uh, for instance, there was a day during minicamp last year when instead of practicing, he took them on a paintball excursion. <laughs> and, and you would think that that's kind of like an odd thing to do, but, but Doug knew his players. He knew the value of the chemistry, and that's something he wanted to do. Case in point, overcoming injury mm -hmm. after injury, six biggies, none bigger than perhaps Carson yep. Wentz. What's going on behind the scenes? Maybe it didn't make the pages, but yeah. what's, what's going on behind the scenes when, when Carson goes down and, and Nick steps up? Yeah. So, and, and this goes back really to the organizational approach during the offseason. Um, they so valued the role of a backup quarterback. Uh, Nick Foles is someone who had a lot of success with the Eagles in 2013, 27 touchdowns, two interceptions. Um, Chip Kelly unceremoniously traded him in March 2014, uh, and Nick had a tough time thereafter. But 
Chip Kelly traded him. Jeffrey Lurie didn't trade him. Howie Roseman didn't trade him. And inside the organization, they thought very highly of Nick Foles to the point that when Nick Foles became available in free agency, they cut Chase Daniel, absorbing a significant salary cap hit. Okay, so basically they paid Chase Daniel $8 million essentially to walk away so they can bring Nick Foles in. In the, m in the off chance that Carson Wentz was injured, they wanted to be prepared for that situation. So when Carson goes down, there was confidence that they had a good backup quarterback who's not an MVP caliber player, Super Bowl MVP caliber player, but not the MVP caliber player Carson Wentz was. But even more, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad Molly brought this up because I have this scene in the locker room, and I admit, I, um, at this point, this scene came from Molly's employers, you know, so uh, the Eagles released the video. I don't know who that was. <laughs> of, uh, the, of, like, uh, the Eagles released the video of Malcolm Jenkins giving this post-game speech. And Malcolm Jenkins gave this impassioned speech, basically saying that, <coughs> that everything's in front of them. And uh, I'm not using Malcolm's specific words. You can read the book on that. But, uh, but everything's in front of them, and, and, uh, and no one's going to believe in them, but all that matters is the people in, inside that locker room. And I asked Malcolm three days later in the, in the locker room. I, I, I had a chance. Malcolm and I were talking. And I, I said, you know, if, if you know Malcolm Jenkins or you listen to him, he puts thought in everything he says. And, and I said, why did you choose that message at, at that time? Was that just the emotion or were you thinking about it? And he said as Doug was giving his speech, Malcolm was thinking about what he was going to say. Malcolm always talks after Doug. And he knew that he was, he was pointing to me, but he meant like the media at, at large was waiting outside that locker room to talk to these guys. And everyone, the vultures. Yes. The vultures. And we would all ask the questions, essentially, your season's over, you just lost Carson Wentz. And Malcolm Jenkins wanted to establish at that moment that they're not making that excuse, that everyone else might think their season's over. Inside that locker room, they still view themselves as the best team in the NFL. They, had, they just beat the Los Angeles Rams on the road with Nick Foles in the fourth quarter. Um, they, they, had, they clinched – you know, the, the, the home field, they, 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 they clinched the NFC East, so the home game in the first round. They really genuinely thought they had a chance, and Malcolm wanted to establish that message right there before any of those players talked to the media, talked to their family, talked to their friends. They're not using this as an excuse. So that was really, that set the tone for everything that came thereafter. Yeah, the Rams in week 15 yep. this season, right? And, and Carson's relationship with Nick, mm -hmm. a big story to this day, right? It's mm -hmm. an intriguing one, fascinating for someone like, like me that, yep. you know, sideline reporters, uh, even though I'm not doing that in my present role, that's what we, we live by, right? Are those, those moments you can bring out the personality. So specifically with Nick, take us back to that 2016 fishing trip. He, sure. he pondered retirement. Yeah, so. Uh, take yeah. us through it. Yeah, so, so Nick essentially thought that he, he, he felt he lost his love for the game. And, um, and, and Nick Foles is, is different than a lot of other players in that locker room in that he, he doesn't need to play football for, 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 for his fulfillment. Like he has so many interests out, outside of football, um, and he, he, he plays because he, he loves football. And he felt like he lost that, that passion for the game, and he went on a fishing trip uh, with his brother-in-law, and, and he decided he was going to retire. The Los Angeles Rams were letting him go. He had a bad experience with the St. Louis Rams. 
And then he got a call from Andy Reid. And Andy Reid was the one who, who drafted him with the Eagles. Doug Peterson was the quarterback's coach. Doug Peterson went down to Austin, Texas to work Nick Foles out before that draft. Um, and Doug Peterson at the time was the offensive coordinator. So he felt familiarity with Andy Reid, felt comfort with Andy Reid. And he said, if I'm ever going to give this a shot, it's going to be for Andy Reid. So he returned to the Chiefs uh, as, as their backup quarterback for Alex Smith. And he started to, to really enjoy football again. And he put the Rams experience behind him. Um, he liked Kansas City. When his contract wasn't picked up with the Chiefs um, last off or, or, or two off seasons ago, and the Eagles called, uh, he was choosing actually between the Eagles and the Buccaneers. And he chose the Eagles because his wife was pregnant at the time, and he felt comfort in the Philadelphia area. He, he knew a lot of his teammates. He, he trusted Jeffrey Lurie and Howie Roseman. And so he came back with that, and he was Carson Wentz's backup quarterback. He accepted that. Nick thought he could still be a starting quarterback in the league, but he accepted that he was going to be Carson's backup quarterback. And Carson's very much a type A personality. Like, like when Carson walks into a room, he wants to know who everyone is in that. You know, he, he's, that's the way his mind works. He's in charge of the huddle. Nick Foles is much more of a laid-back personality. And I think they're, they're in, in, in that role as backup quarterback, you need someone who understands that that's the start. You know, I, I think if the roles were reversed, if Nick was the starter and Carson was the backup, it wouldn't work out as well. Um, but I, I do think Nick's personality helped there. And then when Nick became the starter, he was very cognizant that even though Carson's injured, it's Carson's team. Nick's the placeholder there, but it's Carson's team. And this is genuine. I mean, this is legit. That's who, that's who Nick is. Yes. Now, he didn't win Super Bowl MVP and write, an, and write a book that had 2,000 people at the door at the time. So uh, if, if that's the – you know, I, I think now Nick might be more emboldened. He's happy in his role now, but Nick feels more than ever now that he can be a starting quarterback. Um, but, yeah, it, it was genuine, and Nick made sure during the postseason that, um, that, that he, he gave that message. And I'll give Carson a, a, a lot of credit, too. Carson – was very cognizant that, that that Nick's the starter while Carson was hurt. He intentionally took a role in in the back. You know, he he didn't want to be front and center. He didn't do any media interviews until the uh, until the week of the Super Bowl. Okay, and and, and when he did, he was very he, he really credited Foles. Nick's or, or Carson still went to the quarterback meeting room every morning. Okay, and wanted to help wanted to help Nick, and a matter of fact, uh, and I have a, a, a lot of this in the book, NFL Films had Carson, oh, I'm sorry, had Nick mic'd up for the Super Bowl, and you hear Carson encouraging him, and you hear what Carson says to him before the game. And the reason why I wanted to include that is because that's not Carson in a media interview saying the right thing. That's a private moment mm -hmm. between Carson and Nick Foles, and you hear what Carson says to Nick before the Super Bowl begins. I thought that was really powerful, and it, it showed the mutual respect between them. Yeah, and it's not just like a timeout. Like Doug Collins would yeah. be mic'd up in a timeout on TNT, and he would he would you know straighten his tie and be. Yeah, exactly. th this was in the heat of the moment, exactly. and so that is genuine, and that's why I wanted to to punch that home. But I think like many, how many of you guys were here when Nick was in the house? couple of you guys. Yeah, Alex, good job on that. Uh, y you know, in his Super Bowl speech, though, Nick said, listen, you know, 
social media, right? It's a highlight reel. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of showed um, that it's okay to fail. Mm -hmm. He said, it's okay to fail yeah. and you should fail. And so to see as MVP um, have daily struggles like all of us, that, that kind of helps connect with his fans, I could, I could imagine. Yeah, Nick, Nick really took, took pride in that message. And he, 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 sa he said, you know, what can people, he, he was asked by an another reporter, it was a very good question, what can people learn from your journey? And he talked about that, that, that it's okay to fail. It's, it's okay to be vulnerable, basically. It's, it's, it's okay to fail. And that he's learned a lot from that. And he used the example of social media, you know, that people only put the highlights of their life on there. But he thought it was good to, to share that he almost retired, that he had lost his love of football, that he was down. Um, you know, he, it, it, it was not that 27 touchdown, two interception season. Um, I, I, I knew Nick from the time he, he started with the Eagles. We came in the same year, 2012. And he's a different person now or a different quarterback now than he was then. I think because of the life experiences have really shaped him. I think anyone learns from failure. Um, and uh, and I, I, I think that helps him. I thought that was a very powerful message at that moment. And becoming a father, which you know. Yes, to absolutely. To too, probably softened him up Actually, a little Nick's, bit. Actually, uh, Nick's daughter was Around born the, yeah. the, same, the, the same month as my son. But my son was sound asleep during the Super Bowl, and Nick's daughter was there during the yeah. celebration, so. I love it. She's Balance. a different experience, yeah. That, that's okay, that's okay. Our kid was fast asleep, <laughs> too, I get it. Alex, how are we doing on time? I don't wanna go. Okay, um, so again, going back to why your book is different, all those others you can read, <laughs> but this guy is the definitive voice. Uh, and one reason why are the backstories with the yeah. players. Fletcher Cox, who has quickly become one of, one of my favorite. Yeah. Uh, he was a man on a mission, and you spent some yeah. time in his hometown in Mississippi. What was it like spending time with, with his family? Yeah, it's a lot different than Philadelphia. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. Yasmin City, Mississippi, um, you know, you, uh, uh, it was interesting. You see uh, Fletcher Cox for as, as high profile as he, had, as, as he has now. He'll say he's just a big old country boy. That's what he'll say. He likes to, he likes to go fishing. He likes to work on his cars. Um, it's a much slower way of life down there, but um, the thing that stood out in being around Fletcher's family, and I had the good fortune of meeting his brother who passed away recently, uh, you know, two years ago, um, and I spoke to Car I spoke to Fletcher's teachers, uh, his his coaches, that they wanted to get him out of Yazoo City, and a point that was really illustrated to me by his high school coach was we were driving. I was in the passenger seat, his coach was driving, and we passed this bad part of town with where, where Fletcher grew up in. And, um, and he pointed to a spot on the bridge where the coach said there was this guy, Tutu, okay? And he said Tutu uh, was 6'7", 300 pounds, and could have been Fletcher Cox, could have gone to Mississippi State, could have gone to the NFL. Well, Tutu made bad decisions and ended up next to the bridge. And I said, what made Fletcher different then? And he said, and, and, and Fletcher's very soft-spoken. He's gotten better now, but he, he's very soft-spoken. And, and, and the coach said, Fletcher listened to everything. Um, the guidance counselor told me that. The teachers told me that. The coach told me that. Fletcher's mom told me that. That he listened more than he talked. And he knew what it would take to get out of there. And if, if you go to Yazoo City High School, they, or at the time at least, they, they had 
all these pictures of Fletcher Cox in their college guidance in their guidance in their college guidance office to illustrate what he did to get out of Yazoo City, Mississippi, and it's something Fletcher's very proud of to this day. And uh, another one, another story that I like, player personnel-wise, Chris Long, mm-hmm. how his life changed yeah. in a bar, nonetheless. Break that down for sure. us. Sure. Yeah. So so Chris was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with a former teammate of his. Just uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's it's something that, that he kind of always wanted to do. And uh, he was celebrating afterwards over a few drinks at, at the hotel bar. And he had a tap on his shoulder. And it was from Joe Buck, uh, interestingly enough. And Joe Buck was there <laughs> with, this is another interesting connection, <laughs> yeah. Brad Pitt's brother. And Brad Pitt's brother might be known here as Brad Pitt's brother, but he's, he's, he's actually a goodwill and, and, and ambassador for clean water. And they had a conversation about the need for clean water in Africa. And it really opened Chris Long's eyes about how many problems in Africa come from waterborne illnesses. Uh, and so Chris thought, you know, this could be something that, that, that I could really help. And he came back and he started an organization called Water Boys, which focuses on clean water initiatives in, in, in East Africa. And what Chris realized was how valuable his platform was. Now, Chris Long, Callie Long's son, all right? So, so he had he'd grown up in the, in, the, in, the, in the spotlight, and Chris always tried to kind of keep things quiet in terms of his philanthropic endeavors. He, you know, he didn't want a lot of media for it, but he saw that as he was getting later in his career, the platform was really powerful. So last year, as things were going on in his hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, and Chris has, uh, has a lot of thoughts about uh, different things around the country. Uh, he, he wanted to get involved in educational opportunities in, Phil- in Philadelphia, in Boston where he used to play, in St. Louis where he used to play. And he started an, an organization, um, and he was very vocal about it because of the platform. But he only learned that really when he was in East Africa having beers after climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And I still like Angelina and Brad. That's a side hit. We'll, we'll get the scoop from Zach later on that. Uh, 265 pages. You've got seven blank pages that follow, which often is the case in many books. Is there anything that didn't make the cut in your book that you're like, ah, oh, my editor left this out, or oh, I wish I got this in? Is there anything that, that what else do we need to know? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and um, I think that I... There's 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 more there in terms of Nick Foles' background that I could have gotten into. Um, I w- I would say that what I w- I would really have liked to add was um, Howie Roseman's time away. I have a chapter on that, but Howie focuses on what he learned more so than what he did. Um, and Howie signed, you know he he said the right things there, but I I, w- I would really like to know. Uh, in those moments there, uh, what was plan B? You know, because Chip Kelly could have been successful. Chip Kelly got Marcus Mariota and is the head coach here for the next 10 years. I assure you, Howie Rosen would not be in the organization right now. Um, that's, 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 w- that's one thing I would say. Um, uh, Carson Wentz is, is time of recovering from the injury. So I, I, I had a May 15th deadline for the book. All right, and 
I got to I talk to I think Meryl did his May 18th. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think he was a few days <laughs> late then. Um, <laughs> he can and do that. And, and so, uh, yeah, and, and Meryl Reese wrote the forward. I really <laughs> appreciated that because uh, he's, he's an Eagles Hall of Famer. Um, but uh, Carson Wentz, his, the year he had, I, I've gotten to talk to Carson quite a bit about it since the injury, but when I wrote the book, all I really had was Carson's kind of comments during the Super Bowl run. And uh, if I had written the book now, I'd have a lot more insight on Carson's time away. And then the other thing is how the Super Bowl changed a lot of these players. If, if, if I wrote an afterword for the book, you know, that there's hopefully there's a second edition or a third edition, and, and I will add that. What's happened in the past few months since the Super Bowl, I think is really fascinating and how the team handled it well in some cases, not well in other cases. I mean, Doug Peterson wrote a book, Nick Foles wrote a book, uh, and they struggled early on the season. They had a lot of players who got surgery after the year because they, they had to put it off during the season. That quote-unquote Super Bowl hangover, I think that's really interesting, and I think that 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 how the Super Bowl affected so many players in that locker room will be something I would like to put on those last few pages. Well, you can just have a second book, and <laughs> we will all meet you here. I would love that. Uh, yes. There we go, Alex. Pencil it in. <laughs> uh, so some Q and A. So you guys have questions for him. I've done enough. I'm We're sorry. We're from Molly too. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's got all the answers. Yeah, got you right here. Question about um, Frank Wright. Yeah, of course. And, um, Central Pennsylvania boy, mm -hmm. his influence, and then how we're missing him now. Yeah, just just what you saw day to day with. Frank it's a great Wright. question um, because Frank Reich, you know, so he he was the offensive coordinator, and he wasn't calling plays. And oftentimes, you think an offensive coordinator who doesn't call plays, they're not they're not that powerful in the organization. It's actually the opposite. Frank was first off, Frank as a former quarterback. Has a, had a strong voice in Doug Peterson's ear. Doug Peterson wanted Frank Reich to be his offensive coordinator. They bounced a lot of things off each other. They, you know, Frank Reich was very influential in terms of the game plans. Doug called the plays, but Frank put the game plans together, um, and that helped, especially on third downs. They were their their big emphasis last offseason was situational football, third downs and red zone, and what Frank Reich did on third downs was outstanding. The other thing behind the scenes. Um, Frank really connected with both Carson Wentz and Nick Foles, and um, and Frank's strong faith uh, really resonated with both of them. Actually, Frank became a pastor after his playing days. Nick was in, and Nick's in the process of doing the same. Um, so they had a connection, and that's probably why Frank wrote the foreword for Nick's book. Uh, in terms of how they miss him now, uh, it's a good question. Mike Rowe, uh, who is the new offensive coordinator. Um, he's he's a smart guy in his own right. Uh, he he has a different background than Frank. It's hard to pin it's 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 hard to pinpoint. That's the reason for the struggles. Doug's still calling the plays, um, and a third down here, a third down there. Everything's different. Uh, but they're cle they clearly were a better offense last year with. Frank Reich, John D. Flippo, they averaged, I think, 28.6 points per game last year. So right now they're at 22.3. They've only scored, you know, they were third in the NFL in scoring last year. They're in the bottom third this year. Uh, so th I, they, they do miss Frank Reich. I can't quantify exactly how, but um, I can tell you Frank Reich was a huge part of that success last year. Other help. questions? 
It'll help having one of the league's best third down receivers on his right. Golden Tate. Little, little boost. Little boost. Um, you've obviously come across a lot of people, execs, players, whatever, that have shown levels of uh, you know performing well under pressure or you know consistently across years. Is there like one characteristic or trait that you see in all those people that you think mm. would translate to everybody else? That's a, that's a good question, um, and and that really transcends football. Obviously, obviously that there needs to be a there needs to be discernible talent in whatever you do, whether it's playing, whether it's coaching. Um, like, like like you need to know what you're doing there. Uh, but I I really think that the other thing that stands out is uh, this, the will, the grit, you know, that, that perseverance. How do you deal with things when they don't go well? Um, because invariably, when, when, things are, when things are going well, it's easy to, it's easy to act humble. Um, it's easy to act like you know what you're doing. When you need, you know, when, when in the case of, of Doug Peterson, when he's criticized, in the case of Howie Roseman, when he loses his job, um, what do you do then? I mean, that's really when, when, when character comes out. And uh, the underdog stories, there's so many of these examples. Malcolm Jenkins, for instance, the New Orleans Saints didn't even offer him a contract, okay? Um, he came to the Eagles as a free agent because the, the, the Saints moved on. The Saints signed Darius Bird, who they wanted over him. Um, and Malcolm really reinvented his career in Philadelphia. Uh, and there's so many examples throughout the roster in the front office, on the coaching staff, of of these guys dealing with adversity, and I, I would say that's that's the thing that I, I think would would transcend when when something bad happens. You, how do you rebound? Absolutely. Question over here. Yeah, I I'm sorry. I have a couple questions. Yeah, <laughs> uh, first of all, Molly, excuse my language. You got screwed for NBC. <laughs> okay. There's not the same as you watch a game. What's now. your name? Jim Weaver. Thank you, Jim Weaver. You're quite welcome. Um, secondly, with your relation with uh, John Lor or Lori, Jeff Lori, yeah. uh, how does he view now looking back the Chip Kelly mm -hmm. issue? Does he regret it? Does he think he was wrong? Because I know publicly he won't say anything. Sure. But yeah, so that's a good question and something I, I've spoken to him about. He said. He says he doesn't regret it, and the reason he says he doesn't regret it is because uh, he felt the only way he would really know what he had in Chip is if he put all his chips on the table, so to speak, if he gave Chip what he wanted. Uh, I personally think, and I would tell this if Jeffrey was here, I think they, Jeffrey could have managed that better. I think everyone in the organization could have managed it better. Um, I think Chip Kelly was a good coach despite what his reputation suggests. He was a really bad personnel executive. The notion to give him full personnel control because he doesn't get along with Howie Roseman, too bad. I mean, work together. In all our jobs, there's, there's people you, know, you probably don't get along with. You've got to work well with them. Uh, I, th I thought that could have been handled better at the time. Um, Jeffrey, to Jeffrey's credit, though, he realized quickly it wasn't working. It would have been easy to give Chip another year. He cut his losses when he could. Um, and I give him credit for that, but he says he needed to do it that year to see what Chip was, mm -hmm. and it clearly didn't work out. I think he could have managed that better before. Okay. This is a little off the subject, mm -hmm. but I know we have some young students from Susquehanna University yeah. here who had did some interview. 
can you give us a little bit of background? I know you went to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where you went to school. But what degrees did you have, and what was your little brief road to where you are now? Okay. Oh, well, mine's quicker than, <laughs> than Zach's. Uh, I went to the University of North Carolina. I'm a Tar Heel, the right shade of blue. Uh, <laughs> but I was just telling Zach downstairs that, and Alex, that uh, they took, I was a swimmer, and they took me to a basketball game on my recruiting trip. And I said, where do I sign? Uh, so, you know, and I, I, I grew up in Las Vegas. I did entertainment reporting fresh out of college. I wasn't very good at it. Chasing Britney Spears and Paris Hilton around town was not my my cup of tea. I always wanted to get to the association. Uh, and so it was another NBC-owned network I was working for out west and, and landed here uh, six years ago. And, and so when the Eagles called uh, uh, and propelled me forward, and, and so here I, here I am today. I That's uh, a short story. Yeah, we'll talk story. later. Um, yeah, so I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't getting a, a swimming style or a, a, a uh, a chance to swim at the college level. My my um, my English teachers found me more promising than my than my baseball coaches did. To be honest with you, uh, I I always wanted to be a, to be in sports, and I, I caught the bug in terms of writing early on. I, I think television came later on for me, but I liked the written word. I, I think I had a degree of discernible talent at it, and I focused on it from the jump. Um, when I was in college, I uh, all right, I chose Syracuse for the journalism school, not for their weather. Uh, and <laughs> I I went, you know, I went to the campus newspaper for my first week there. Uh, I was very fortunate that I got an opportunity at the Washington Post out of college. It was an internship. It started, and then then the week so three weeks before the college football season started, their University of Virginia and their Virginia Tech writer. Uh, took a job covering the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Virginia was set to open the season against USC, who was the number one team in the country at the time. Mark Sanchez was their quarterback. And they needed someone who could move to Charlottesville, Virginia, on three weeks' notice. I was 22 years old. Uh, my internship was about to expire. I had no, you know, I had no wife, no kids. I'll, I'll go anywhere to work at the Washington Post. So they gave me a, uh, a short contract through the football season, and that turned into something longer than that, and I did that. Um, and then I did it for two years, but I, I realized no matter what Virginia did, anything that happened with the Washington Redskins was more important. Um, so <laughs> I wanted to cover the NFL. And I took a job covering the New York Giants for the Star-Ledger in, in mm -hmm. North Jersey. I did that for two years, and I wanted to get back to Philadelphia. And I took an opportunity back in Philly, and uh, I've been in Philly ever since. And one piece of advice I could give, I mean, I'm sure we could yeah. swap war stories here, is just be true to yourself no matter what field, and you guys are shaking your, it, w no matter what field you choose, just be true to yourself and be ready to fail. Take a page from Nick Foles' book and, and, and be ready to fail because you're going to fail. If you don't, then you're, you're not doing it right. One more question. This is a current topic. Yeah. I listen to WIP almost every morning with Angelo and then okay. John Ritchie in the afternoon because I'm on the road a lot. Uh, one of the big topics was the lack, I'm not going to say discipline of practices <laughs> compared to last year has been kind of a big focus. Now, you guys being at practice, have you noticed it to what other commentators have been talking about? Well, so, so for full disclosure here, during training camp, I'm allowed at every minute of every practice. During the season, I'm only allowed uh, the first 20 minutes or so. One, that's individual drills. Once they go to team drills, so they show what they're, you know, they work on their game plan, they kick the media out. Um, so I, I don't see them in those drills. I, 
I, it's, I'll take their word for it. I think more of the issue has been the lack of continuity with the roster. They haven't had the, the lineup that they've wanted all season. Carson Wentz didn't come in until week three. Alshon Jeffrey didn't come in until week four. They get those guys back, other guys are out. Darren Sproles has been out since week one. They've signed Jordan Matthews off the street, he's starting for them. They signed Dexter McDougal off the street, he's starting for them. Um, and so injuries are a reality of the NFL, but they've been so concentrated at certain positions, number one. And number two, the Eagles really didn't get an offseason with the lineup that they wanted. So I think that the sloppiness, if you will, I think that's been a big part of it. Yes, front row. I mean, can you, I mean, this is for both of you, I guess. Can you just take me through a typical game day? Like what game day is like for you? Good question. Um, so with the Eagles, a little bit different than my role uh, with the 76ers. I was a sideline reporter for them. So that was, um, I'm, I'm, not do I'm not as busy on games now. And so I've got a little bit more time for my daughter and such to get her game ready. Uh, but, you know, for me, it, you never turn it off. You're constantly reading. Zach is obviously the definitive voice, but you're, you're reading um, not just local writers, but, but national and, and, and obviously the away team. And, and one part of the, the business that I love is that the sideline reporters, at least in the NBA, city to city, we're all very close. And so we kind of do swap those war stories. And so that's kind of what you're doing pregame, is, is learning things that maybe aren't in the headlines or things behind the scenes. Um, so game day is the best day, right? Uh, but it's, it's, the, it's beautiful to watch practice and, and, and be in the halls at the NovaCare Complex and see these guys and the inner workings of things. It's a lot different than the 76ers. It's a different feeling. I felt it on day one when I walked in there. Um, not that it's smoke and mirrors with the Sixers, but, but the Eagles are where they want to get back to be, being. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just a different feel for me. But game day, there's nothing better. I miss that side. I miss being on the sideline and, and, and listening to things. And I do miss that. I didn't think that I would as much as I do, but I, I do. But Zach is much busier on. No, uh, <laughs> I, I like to say Monday to Saturday is when I get paid. Like, I, I would do Sunday for free, you know. Um, I love that. And because and, and the reality is, uh, I hate to admit this, I wouldn't tell this to my bosses because they spend a lot of money putting us on planes to all these games. We're least valuable on Sundays. Unlike, and, 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 uh, unlike the NBA and Major League Baseball and hockey, um, there's only 16 games. In the, in the NBA, most of what's going on is in front of your eyes, okay? In the NFL, most of what's going on is behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. There's only three hours a week when we're seeing the same thing, okay? Um, so what I'm most valuable to our readers, to the fans, Monday to Saturday, because that's when I'm, I'm where you can't go and I'm showing you. When I'm watching the game and I'm watching it in person, I actually have less access than, than the person watching on TV because, you know, I don't hear the commentators. I don't hear the announcers. Um, I, you know, so uh, in terms of what, what, what game day's like. I know. Uh, he's pretty loud with <laughs> Jeff in that press box. <laughs> I've heard that's him. The, that's more <laughs> Jeff than me. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I get to the stadium about three and a half hours before. I'm watching warm-ups. There's usually a player who's questionable. Like last week, for instance, was Haloti Nada. So I'm in London. I'm watching Nada work out. You, you get a sense. Is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Inactives come out. 90 minutes before the game. Those 90 minutes before the game, I, I, I tell my wife, that's the only time no breaking news can happen. All right, so like, uh, that's when I can, I, I can eat a meal, I can talk to my coworkers, and I don't have to worry about something happening. Now once the game starts, um, I have a running story during the game because even if, it, 
even if it's a one o'clock game, we have to get it online for the, the minute the clock ends. And then, uh, and if it's a night game, that need, needs to be in the paper the minute the clock ends. Uh, and then I'm down in the locker room and I'm, I'm at Doug's press conference, Carson's press conference, I'm talking to players in the locker room. If they lose, the locker room gets out much quicker. <laughs> and, and then you come up and, and you write your stories and I do a podcast and I write, I have a daily newsletter that I do. And so I'm working on, on that. And then it's, it's just rinse and repeat. And there's a, there's, a, there's a Monday schedule and a Tuesday schedule. Th it's very regimented during the season. But game day, uh, you know, game day's fun. And it's not to say the other days aren't fun, but the other days is when you're really the eyes and the ears of everyone else. And you make those relationships, develop exactly. those relationships that he has that, that created the book, you know? And, and the key thing there, and, and, and Molly knows this, 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 how this well as well, is the time to build the relationships is before you need them, all right? So, and it's, it's like having a friend, you know? You, you, you build that be, be, be before you need one. If I'm calling a player or calling a coach when only when news happens, they have no reason to tell me anything. But you know, the example I always give is, is I covered the Giants, and they had this undrafted player, number three, from UMass. And he's playing, and I was doing stories on him, and I was talking to him. Just because it's your job as a reporter to build all these relationships. And it turns out he's Victor Cruz. You know, <laughs> but he wasn't Victor Cruz when he was an undrafted player from UMass. He was a Victor Cruz when he had a 98-yard catch against the Jets. So, so uh, the, you know, the time to get to know Nick Foles is when he's a rookie with glasses looking like Napoleon Dynamite, who's the third-string quarterback. It's not if you want to get the interview after a Super Bowl MVP. Um, just after like a tough loss or like a game and Carson Wentz goes down mm -hmm. and like the players might not be in the greatest mood to talk to the media. Do you ever have like a tough time connecting with the players in the locker room? And like, if so, like, how do you handle that? Yeah, that's, that's part of the job. Um, so you try to form connections with them, but, but, but they're humans too. They have the same emotions that any of us would have in that situation. There's times to be frank when I'll piss a player off when, when uh, a player won't be happy with a question. And, and but you're always fair. You're always fair because I yeah. listen in on these things. You know, you know different players, and you know Thank their you. personalities. You're always fair with them. They that. respect yeah. that. You 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 try to be, and but 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 the key is, and and Molly said this is is be there and be fair. Like be by their locker room no matter what. If they score the game winning mm -hmm. touchdown, if they drop the game winning catch, you're there, and and they know it too. You know, like they know the people who are there every day, and. And, and you're fair. You acknowledge the emotion that's that's involved in it. But I'm there to do a job, and it's it's part of their job. I, I mean, they, you know, uh, this is the big time. Welcome to the NFL. You know, that that's 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 reality. Um, and so they're gonna get a lot of praise and glory when they win, and when they lose, um, it's my job to ask them the questions. Then we have time for just one more question. Yep. Sorry, I should have. Wanted to know. I probably took away all your questions. Uh, yeah, Car uh, Carson Wentz came from uh, uh, FCS school yeah. and not 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 a major college. Yep. And how were the Eagles so confident that he would work out, given that he wasn't playing against teams like Penn State, Notre Dame, and, and sure. all that? I'm I'm really glad you asked that because I have a chapter in the book called "The Pursuit of the Savior" uh, or "The Pursuit of the Franchise Quarterback," and and that's that's they had 80 pages of notes on Carson Wentz playing style, um, health, his, his psychological background, all, all these different things. And one of the, the, the big things that they, 
were looking at was his FCS background, that he, w that he went to North Dakota State. A matter of fact, John Filippo, the quarterback's coach, in the, in the interview at the Combine, the Eagles released a year or two later video from their Combine interview. John Filippo asked him that very question, how are you compared, you know, and uh, I'll compare to a, a quarterback from a big conference school. And there was a, a few things they, they looked at. First off, his, comp his production against major conference opponents, they played Iowa State, for instance, and they looked at that. Um, they looked at the style of offense he came from. So it was a pro-style offense. He, w he had to make checks at the line of scrimmage. You can play in the SEC, um, but if, if you're running a spread offense where, where you don't have to make pre-snap reads, um, who's better prepared? You know, you're seeing better defenders, but you're not running the offense that, that you'd run for the Eagles. So they really like the offensive system that he's from. And then just his personality. He was very mature. They, they went out to dinner with him. I actually, I tracked down someone who was in the restaurant at the time to find out uh, <laughs> what he was like at, at that dinner. And, uh, and when the, the, the team arrived in Fargo, Carson was waiting outside the team facility there, shook everyone's hand. Uh, North Dakota nice. I yeah. learned that from Zach. Yes. That's what they call it. Uh, Pride in the friendly. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and, and so they, one of their concerns was that small school background, but they had all this research and information on him. They felt utterly confident that he'd be successful. Um, I don't want to say despite it, but they weren't so much worried about that. Can we give it up for Zach and Molly?